And uh, I really want to be, make one thing sure that we start and we finish uh, promptly. We have a distinguished panel of speakers. And without any further ado, I shall start by introducing uh, our principal speaker, our keynote speaker, Professor Danny Kwa. Professor Danny Kwa is uh, one of those uh, frightening people you have to work with at LSE all the time. The older you get, your colleagues get better and better and younger and younger. And, the, and every time you come to work, you worry whether they think that you completely passed it and you shouldn't retire long ago. And I have, I have lived with, with, uh, with uh, Danny Kwa for many years in a constant fear that uh, I have become fast obsolete. He, he has done lots of very hard technical work on econometric time series uh, and matters like that, but he also has, has uh, turned his brilliant mind to other problems. He, for example, was the pioneer of the concept of weightless economy. By, by pointing out that, that the way the economy was going, it was becoming less and less material and more and more abstract and, and, and intellectual. He has done outstanding work on growth and equity, uh, Twin Peaks, he may talk about, uh, and of course he is an authority on intellectual property rights. Danny Kwa. Thank you, Magnat. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure indeed to be here this morning. It, is, it would be presumptuous of me, an outsider, to come to a gathering like this and presume to tell you how infrastructure in this country or in any other country needs to be reformed. Every country in the world faces challenges in its infrastructure. Those, inf those problems, those challenges can take the form of legal problems, they can be technological, or they might be physical. The forces that drive these institutional infrastructural reforms can be either traditional forces or they can be new ones thrown up by changes in world governance, changes in modern technology, or political changes in the world at large. The problems of reform that we face can be urgent and immediate and short-term, or they can be deep and underlying and longer-term. As an outsider, I cannot presume to know all the intricate micro details that a large country like India has to confront on a day-to-day -day basis. But by the same token, as an outsider, I can try and give a perspective by comparing developments here with developments elsewhere in the world. Now, every billion people economy that humanity has yet produced 
shows within itself wide contrasts and great divides. The larger that something is, necessarily, the more extreme the opposite that it generates, regardless of the true reality. But in the eyes of the outside world, perhaps nowhere shows greater polarization than India today. And the contrast takes many forms, but one form is roughly the following. There is a high-tech, plugged-in, globalized India that shows a cutting-edge dynamism, that shows cool success, that shows global impact. These successes are lauded in reports that range from Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat, numerous articles in Wired magazine, regular features in the Economist newspaper, and almost daily accounts in every international newspaper of repute. There are bright shining monuments that dot the Indian landscape that mark out award-winning global leaders in information technology, in pharmaceuticals, in media and entertainment, and much elsewhere. Steve Ham's book, Bangalore Tiger, published obviously before the name change to Bengaluru, argues that it is conceptual models and management insight at Infosys, Tata, and Wipro, rather than low labor costs alone, that have allowed these successes, that have allowed Indian information technology and business processing to run circles around their more established Western counterparts. A quarter century of fierce pharmaceuticals competition without the straitjacket of overly restrictive intellectual property rights has made India the world's largest producer and a major exporter of bulk drugs and essential medication that are critical in the fight against bacterial infection prevalent in tropical countries. These are successes that you and I sitting in this room today are likely intimately and personally familiar with. But switch perspective only minimally and take the perspective of, say, some of my colleagues, some of my economist colleagues working at the LSE or elsewhere. Then the switch in perspective immediately latches us onto a debate among, about, among other things, the extent of grinding poverty in India. World Bank data tell us that the top 10% of India's population makes 28% of its national income, and the bottom 10th only 4%, a ratio of 7 to 1. India has 80% of its population living on less than $2 a day. 35% on less than $1 a day. By contrast, in East Asia and the Pacific region more generally, the counterpart fractions are only 41% and 12%. And for China, the only other 
billion people economy, those numbers are smaller. 47% of China's population live on less than $2 a day, and 17%, half the fraction of that we see in India, lives on less than the $1 a day threshold. So these contrasts that we need to explore in the academic literature and in business surveys and in many scholarly studies, we read about India's dismal physical infrastructure in roads, ports, and power supply, India's fractured distribution network, India's stifling government bureaucracy and ineffectual public sector. But China, too, has no nationwide highways distribution network. China's retail sector, too, like India's, is fragmented into regions because of diversity in tastes. Expand our perspective further afield. Take putatively the already developed countries. Take the UK, for instance. Personal experience and the experience of many of you who've been in the UK recently, you know, lets us reflect on how the UK's infrastructure and distribution network is nothing to write home about, even if my home is already in London. Too hot a day or too cold a day, the wrong kinds of leaves, the wrong kinds of dust will cripple the London train network. This happens not just in the UK, but it happens in Connecticut, United States. Leaves falling on trains in the train lines in the United States too bring that particular distribution network to a halt. But we can expl explore this further. The rail system, critical though it is, and the number one employer of personnel in India, the rail system in the UK moves only 6% of people miles in the UK. The road system moves 85% of people miles in a typical workday. And in a typical workday in the United Kingdom, 25% of the trunk roads in the UK are clogged for more than one hour a day. When I first came to London to work, I was told that the average speed on main roads in London have remained constant over roughly the last two centuries. Victorian England and modern-day London have roughly the same speed of transportation um, across its road structure. So that we have poor infrastructure in the world is exactly that, poor infrastructure in the world. It is not unique to India or to any other underdeveloped or relatively poor country. But what is true is a government bureaucracy and a way of doing business where the numbers are more stark. So for instance, we know from economic reasoning that strong property rights, being able to start up businesses and close up businesses that are, that are unsuccessful and to move on to be 
dynamic, active entrepreneurs. It matters a lot for economic growth. Well, in India, it takes 67 days to register a property, 71 days on average to start a business. By contrast, in rich economies, registering a property takes only 47 days, starting a business only 24, a third of the length of time on average it takes in India. East Asia and the Pacific region, overall, starting a business takes 55 days. Not as good as in the rich economies, but better than what we see currently in India. There is a long bottom tail to expand on in this tale, in this story of economic growth in India today. And this long bottom tail of the distribution pulls down averages, even when set against the cool, cutting-edge dynamism of Bangalore and elsewhere. Thus, India, in its latest figures, only has 32 Internet users per 1,000 people. East Asia and the Pacific region, 74. The rich economies, 550. India, on average, only has 44 mobile phone subscribers per 1,000 people. East Asia and the Pacific region, 243. The rich economies, 800. India remains an economy of polarized extremes. Now, there are two ways to go when faced with such polarized extremes. As a researcher, as an analyst, as a policymaker, you can succumb to pessimism and you work and you research and you formulate policy on the bottom of this distribution and on the misery that we see in the world around us. Or you can look at the successes and you can try and figure out what made them so. I want to do the latter. Now, by coincidence or otherwise, all the successes on which India has taken global lead concern digital technologies, computer software, business processing, pharmaceuticals, Bollywood movies. These successes are all about creating, storing, and manipulating strings of ones and zeros, digital technologies. Whether these ones and zeros are kept in order in a database that then services insurance claims in the United States, or they're wrapped together to make computer code that streamline operation and inventory control. Whether these strings of ones and zeros are encoded in chemical formulas that fight bacterial infection when they become pharmaceuticals, or whether these strings of ones and zeros are sequenced in a particular way so that they make an image on screen that edifies and entertains us in a Bollywood movie. All these successful industries have been facilitated by dramatically falling prices on the relevant tools. 
They have been driven by creativity and brain power, and they have been enabled on a global scale by the way in which the technologies themselves have allowed us to reorganize jobs. This is a familiar tale told to us by Tom Friedman and others, who in turn was instructed by some of my fellow panelists this morning. Large projects in these industries can be dissembled. They have their component parts worked on independently and asynchronously in spatially remote locations. They are transported back to where they are needed over fiber optic cable to be reassembled and then put to use. The traditional justification for policy intervention is when economies and societies confront public goods, common resources, national defense. The interesting thing about modern economic development and the relevant observation about economic development in India now that concerns these digital technologies is that they produce goods and services, computer software, pharmaceuticals, digital entertainment, digital music, that themselves bear the nature of public goods. But here is the paradox. These are also precisely the industries in a modern economy that have performed best solely through private enterprise and initiative, not through public policy intervention. By doing well for themselves, these successes have done good for the world. It took no trumpeting of an overarching grand global political design, no obvious big push on national policy, no reams of paperwork from international agreement. What happened in the last 15-20 years is the following. A need arose in the world. The tools to meet that need were developed. Brainy, enterprising individuals from the India Institutes of Technology and elsewhere stepped up to the challenge. In the process, they created wealth, jobs, and opportunity for countless others within India. And by Indian companies increasing supply and thus improving affordability of, among other things, information technology products, the rest of the world has benefited too. Across developing countries today, businesses that now use the kinds of products that Indian industry is most successful at producing the internet, computer technology, computer software, when you compare those businesses in the developing world to those that don't use these technologies, these businesses have higher employment growth. They have 10 times the sales growth. They have double the productivity and 60% higher a level of productivity. These improvements and future potential ones are not confined to developing countries. Again, by doing well for themselves, 
Indian industry, the successful ones, have done good in the world. When you cast your minds back to the things in developed countries that continue to need improvement, it is not just obvious examples like the UK rail network. We can look at the United States. In the United States, towards the end of the 1990s, doctors and academics estimated that 100,000 deaths in the United States were due to preventable medical errors. Even if that were an overestimate, we need to think about what preventable medical errors are. The romantic picture of that is that of a surgeon in an operating room not paying attention and then leaving his scalpel in some, poor, in some poor patient's belly. But that's not what most preventable medical errors are. Preventable, preventable medical errors have to do with human database interaction. They have to do with filling out forms. And even if we could, through Indian information technologies, repair just half of the damage that's done in this context, we will already have saved more people in the United States than are killed each year by breast cancer, by HIV AIDS, and by road accidents. So when the playing field levels even more, as competition takes ever greater hold in pharmaceuticals and digital entertainment and information technology and elsewhere. Clever Indian manufacturing and engineering and artistic creativity will even more than before do good in the world by doing well for themselves. Medication that for now remains unaffordable for many in developing countries will come on stream as Indian pharmaceutical companies, future ones, then get written up by future Thomas Friedmans and future Steve Hams. Already, Cipla and Rambaxi, and the Indian government for that matter, are involved in Clinton Foundation efforts to provide antiretroviral medication to children in over 65 countries for over 50% a discount on what is currently available. What do we need to conclude from this survey about where infrastructure reform needs to go? Infrastructure reform in India and elsewhere needs to pay mind to these emerging patterns of private entrepreneurship, and it needs to make their operation even more straight-lined. Public goods in the form of top-class education, regimes of intellectual property rights that encourage rather than restrict competition, are critical. These areas of an economy, whether in India or in the United States, work best when those knowledgeable in them are allowed to follow their own counsel. It is, in contrast, dead easy for a government, through over-intervention, to destroy a knowledge economy. 14th century Song Dynasty China did precisely that by discouraging knowledge dissemination through interventionist top-down management.
India today is already the fourth largest economy in the world, measured in purchasing power parity adjusted incomes. When you group India together with China, the two and a half billion people in these economies produce a combined total that just about matches the United States in national output. When you add Japan into the mix, these three countries give an economic mass that outweighs the US, Germany, and the UK combined, the world's three largest non-Asian economies. There's a shifting global balance of power that the Prime Minister this morning has already referred you to. The shifting global balance of power has to be merged with our thinking on infrastructure reform. Even as we make our economies more competitive and successful, there will be growing global tensions. And government policy in every economy, including that in India, needs to embrace the largeness and the benefits of participating in this global knowledge-based economy. It has to allow businesses to compete relentlessly. India, I've already pointed out to you, is already very good at that. Economic growth overall is best achieved by having a nation's best performers lead. And economic growth overall is the most powerful and consistently reliable force that humanity has yet discovered for lifting the poor out of grinding poverty. India must not lose sight of these larger macroeconomic goals by drowning in a minutiae of smaller policy problems. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danny. Uh, as, as you can see, he, he knows how to praise us, and then having softened us up, then he knows how to criticize us. So that's very good. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is Kishore Mahmoudani, who is one of those outstanding Asian personalities that uh, kind of one of the pillar people in, uh, in, in international uh, media. He was in the Foreign Service, Singapore, and now he is the Dean of the Law School, Kishore Mabuani. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, friends, you know, the Americans uh, begin their speeches with jokes, uh, Asians begin with apologies. Uh, I'm going to begin with a genuine apology. I arrived this morning at 7.30 a.m. from Prague, Czech Republic. So if I put you to sleep, it's only my jet lag. <laughs> uh, I must say it's a great honor for, for me as dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy to be here uh, on this, for this occasion. Uh, we stand in awe of what the London School of Economics has accomplished, uh, especially in Asia in terms of educating and training a whole generation of people all across Asia. And someday we hope that the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy will be able to match what the London School of Economics has uh, done here. 
Uh, I'm also pleased here to comment on the excellent presentation made by Danny. Uh, I thought I, what, I, what I would do is I would try to complement what Danny has said to you by, in a sense, sharing some of the points from the experience that Singapore has had and the experience that East Asia uh, has had uh, in this area of infrastructure development. And I have essentially three points. The first point is that when we think of infrastructure, uh, of course we think of the physical parts, right? The roads, the ports, the airports, and we, we, we think that that's what we should emphasize in terms of infrastructure development. I think one big lesson we have learned, especially in the last few years, uh, in East Asia, in China, Hong Kong, and Singapore, that perhaps the most important part of the infrastructure is not the visible infrastructure, but the invisible infrastructure. And what do I mean by the invisible infrastructure? I mean very simply clean air. And, for, you know, if you look, for example, at the travails that Hong Kong is going through nowadays. It's not a secret. The Financial Times is reporting it. The Asian Wall Street Journal is reporting it. There's a slight, a gradual exodus of people, expatriates, leaving Hong Kong, despite the fact that Hong Kong has probably the best physical infrastructure in the region. But what's driving people away is the lack of clean air. So, and this is true, by the way, not just of Hong Kong. This is true of many Chinese cities. This is also true, incidentally, of Singapore. Uh, some of you went to, may have been to Singapore two months ago, may have seen the haze over Singapore as a result of the forests, the burning of forests in Indonesia. And that's when we realized, frankly, that the most important item to develop uh, in this area is clean air. And here again, the, I guess the good news that I have to balance that bad news is that it's remarkable how quickly the policy makers in East Asia are waking up to this challenge. I was recently talking to my publisher in New York, uh, trying to write a book on the rise of Asia and trying to collect stories. So my publisher, Clive Priddle, said he was in New York recently and he, he heard a talk given by the chief economist of the International Energy Agency, IEA. And in the course of the Q&A, the chief economist of IEA was asked, and this came out uh, incidentally, which country in your view today is the most environmentally conscious country? And of course, everyone expected him to say Sweden or Finland or Denmark or, frankly, even United Kingdom. But he stunned the whole room with his answer. His answer was that the most environmentally conscious country today in the world is China. He says if you visit China and you talk to the policy makers, there's an enormous obsession in China but how to get it right, how to really get sustainable development in China. And this is, of course, a huge mind shift 
on the part of the Chinese policy makers, if you had gone there 20 years ago, 10 years ago, all that they would focus on would be the physical infrastructure. Now they focus also on how to make it sustainable. My second point also comes from China. And some of you may have heard, incidentally, that uh, I think about 15 years ago, Singapore tried to help China develop industrial parks. And the, the most famous one, of course, is called the Suzhou Industrial Park, just outside Shanghai. And the big point that we realized in our discussions with the Chinese was that the easy part of developing an industrial park is the physical infrastructure. Getting the roads right, the planning right, the, the airport right, that we discover is the easy part. The harder part in infrastructure development actually is the planning systems, the management systems that go with maintaining these industrial parks. So developing them was the easy part. Developing the culture of maintenance was much more difficult. And here, frankly, we also discovered, by the way, very quickly, that the Chinese were very quick learners. And within a few years, we found other Sucho industrial parks being developed in China very quickly. And the remarkable thing about the Chinese, and I'm telling these stories to illustrate how quickly their, their learning capacity is, they move beyond industrial parks to looking ahead to what else does a good city need. And I happened to be in the Singapore Botanic Gardens uh, just two weeks ago uh, because our School of Public Policy is actually going to be located right in the doorstep of the Botanic Gardens. So I was talking to the director and I said, you know, what's going on and what's the most interesting aspect of your job? He says, the most interesting aspect of my job is the number of Chinese city planners who are coming to Singapore to study our botanic gardens. And he says, Kishore, it's amazing how fast they learn. Already our botanic gardens, which by the way was a gift by the British to us, is over 100 years old and one of the best in the world. He says the Chinese are planning to create several such botanic gardens and they tell us that they'll be bigger and better than anything Singapore has done. Now let me come to my third and last point. Um, and here again, I'm taking an example from China because you know the Chinese story is the one that everyone talks about. As you all know, China's reform started uh, in the Shenzhen area. There were four economic zones. Shenzhen was one of the first ones. It's just outside Hong Kong. And Shenzhen, uh, frankly, I'm, I think may hold the record of having the fastest growing economy in the world. It was growing at something like um, 20 to 25 percent a year. I mean, that, that's, that's an incredible rate of economic growth. Now, the question is, how could Shenzhen, which was a tiny fishing village in China, how could it grow at 25% a year? 
how could it do so without having an infrastructure in place? And the simple answer is that basically Shenzhen grew at 25% because it plugged into Hong Kong and used the infrastructure of Hong Kong to take off at that speed. So the, the point here is that as we do an audit of what infrastructure is available for youth in economic development by private planners, we often tend to think within national boundaries. Frankly, when it comes to infrastructure, let's do a regional audit and not a national audit. Because there may be cities, there may be ports, there may be airports, there may be logistics hubs that are available that you can use outside your borders. I mean, again, I'll give an illustration from Southeast Asia this time. The island of Sumatra, which is next to Singapore, can produce wonderful flowers. But the flowers in Sumatra have very little economic value unless you can get them to the Dutch flower market within 24 hours. So what the Sumatrans did was to plug their flower industry in the Changi airport the flowers reached the Dutch flower market within 24 hours, and lo and behold, there was a blossoming flower industry in Sumatra. So in the same way, I think, from, from India's point of view, hopefully if there are other cities like Dubai or, or Singapore or others, if they can fulfill an economic role that the private sector finds to be useful, I hope that that will be considered also. But now I see that the Chief Minister has arrived. I think that is my cue that I should sit down. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Kishore Mabubani. And I want to extend a special welcome to Chief Minister Sheila Dixit. Uh, she will uh, speak to the audience uh, a little bit later. Our next speaker is Nandan Elikani. When, when we were all young and wandering abroad, we had to all talk about Dhaka silk and uh, uh, various old achievements India had. And we had nothing contemporary to celebrate. Nowadays, uh, that's not a problem. Because uh, Wherever you go, you only have to say Bangalore, and everybody knows where you come from, and, and, and what, a, what a tremendous achievement it is. And the Nandil Nilakani is one of those names which now you read all, all the time about abroad as someone who has done achievement at a global level in terms of what uh, IT business can achieve. Nandil Nilakani. Thank you, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at the LSE's Asia Forum. Uh, I think let me spend some time talking about the way I see the whole issue of infrastructure and what's happening. 
I think people generally acknowledge that the IT and BPO industry in India, which Danny referred to, uh, is really in some sense uh, uh, has benefited or has, has is an industry which has not so far required physical infrastructure to achieve what it did. But it's definitely been a beneficiary of the infrastructure of human capital in this country, and it's been a beneficiary of the investment in telecommunications in this country. And it's the power of that technology which allowed this industry to grow from something like $50 million in 1991 when the reforms began to an industry which today is about $24 billion in size and expected to cross 50 to $60 billion in size by the turn of the decade. So clearly, uh, this has been a high-growth industry, and it has benefited from India's investment in human capital, in India's investment in higher education, India's investment in creating world-class telecommunication facilities. So it, is, it, it has benefited from that infrastructure. But I think when we talk about infrastructure today, uh, a lot of the focus is on physical infrastructure. People are concerned about roads, ports, airports, and so forth. And my personal opinion is that we really have hit the turning point on, on these kind of infrastructures because there is now bipartisan opinion that infrastructure is required. I mean, the very fact I'm mean, not many people realize that today we have four private international airports being built in India. We have the Bangalore and the Hyderabad airport, which are both private, which will be ready by 2008. You have the Bombay and Delhi airport, which are also private, which will be built by 2010. And when these four airports are built, and it's you know, in about four years' time, they will have a combined capacity of maybe close to 100 million passengers. So in one shot, you really will be have a dramatic improvement in you know, things like airports. So I think the broad consensus is that now there's, there's a huge amount of positive consensus about infrastructure. And while I think that it's still something which is not ready yet, the broad drivers indicate that it will improve over the next several years. So I'm not, I don't think infrastructure is an issue of any kind of debate anymore. It's really about how to get it done quickly and how to make sure that it delivers. And I think the fact that there's going to be a lot of public-private investment will drive that change. I think more important, I think, is some of the soft infrastructure. And I think that really, I think there's a great story to be told. And I thought I'll spend some time talking about five or six examples of how soft infrastructure in this country has dramatically improved in the last 10 to 15 years, because we don't tend to emphasize that. One example is what's happened in the Indian stock markets. And, you know, Mr. Bhakpa is here as SEBI chairman. He was part of that. But the Indian stock markets have had a sea change in the last 15 years. Fifteen years back, we had very, uh, you know, poor standards of corporate governance, we had a paper-based system. We had a lot of fraud in the marketplace. It took many, many days and weeks to do settlements. Uh, it was really uh, not exactly uh, the world's best system. But if you look at what has happened here, there have been a whole set of reforms which have come together. For example, today we have a completely online real-time stock exchange. The National Stock Exchange, the Bombay Stock Exchange, they're all online real-time systems where anybody anywhere in the country can log on to these systems and do a stock trade. Today we have completely paperless trading in this country because we have a depository where all our stocks are kept and therefore you can just give an electronic instruction where you can buy and sell shares. We have T plus 2 settlement which in some sense is a faster settlement of transactions than in many places in the world. 
We have a very strong regulator in SEBI, which has ensured that high standards of corporate governance are met. We have a very uh, dynamic capital market where we have foreign investors who expect a high level of transparency and, and, and uh, disclosure. So really what it shows is that a combination of public policy, a combination of reforms, a combination of strong regulators, a combination of getting in you know, global capital and technology have created a sea change in the way our capital markets are run. Another example is what's happened in the banking system. When banking system took up the whole issue of automation and uh, Dr. Narsimhan came out with his first Narsimhan Committee report on banking technology, they did not even use the word computers in 1984. They called them advanced ledger posting machines. And the reason they did that was they thought the use of the word computer in the report would be a red flag to our friends. But today, that whole thing has completely changed, and I think the, the rapid use of technology in our banking system has created a very high level of uh, improvement in uh, risk management, a very high level of uh, improvement in transaction efficiency, cutting down liquidity in the system, you know, settlements happening very quickly, real-time gross settlement, electronic payments, the whole thing has changed. Again, this is not infrastructure as a road, but this is really having a very good payment system is as much good infrastructure as having a road. And I think that's another great example of how we have had improvements in infrastructure on the softer side. A third example is what's happening with tax information network. You know, today, you know, if you, if you notice one thing, if you look at the tax collections today, normally, typically, tax collections are supposed to rise at about 1.5% of GDP. So GDP is growing at 13% in nominal terms. The tax collection should be going up maybe by 20%. But tax collections in India are going up at 30 to 40%. And the reason for that is apart from the economic growth, the fact that technology is being used to collect taxes, the fact technology is being used to monitor transactions is essentially increasing the net of taxpayers, and that's con contributing to a rate of growth of tax collections greater than the rate of growth of GDP. So I mean, I'm just trying to point out to you that uh, in many ways there's been a silent revolution on the, on the soft infrastructure side, whether it's the improvement in the banking system to technology, whether it's the improvement of stock exchanges to technology, the improvement of tax collection to technology, the improvement of uh, voting through electronic voting. And I think that's really where the productivity pops in the system are. And I think we need to see how we can accelerate those kind of things to really create the productivity improvements that we want. And Daddy mentioned the fact that it takes some X days to create a company. Again, there's a very interesting project called MCA21 by the Department of Com Company Affairs, which will allow companies to start registering online and creating, you know, filing, not only creating companies online, but actually filing all the returns online. And that, again, will make a dramatic improvement in productivity because you'll be able to crunch the cycle time of creating new companies from days into just a couple of days. So what we are seeing, and, you know, the, you know people know the story of how, you know, India has built a global presence in technology and, and knowledge processing and BPO. But what is now happening, which is a very interesting subliminal thing, is that, that the global knowledge of how the world is, is using technology is subliminally seeping into the system here. And there are many, many examples. I have just given you five or six of examples of where these same practices are being brought in, and they're making not incremental improvements in productivity, but dramatic improvements in productivity. And to me, that's, that's really where you get the confidence and the optimism that you have a whole new paradigm by which we'll be able to improve a lot of things. 
The other thing I think is the whole issue of the uh, urban infrastructure, and I know uh, Chief Minister Dixit will also talk about it. But I think the good news today is that for the first time in the last 60 years, urban infrastructure in this country is getting its due. You know, if, if you look at the history of urban infrastructure, it's, it's really, you know, declined and become dilapidated for the last 60 years. After the first, after independence, you know, we had a flurry of building new cities, Chandigarh, Bhubaneswar, Gandhinagar, or the steel towns like Bilai and Rurkela. But really, if you look after that, there's never, never really been a focus on creating cities. But the, and, you know, the whole focus has not been on creating cities. And because of the politics of cities in this country, cities have become politically weak and therefore financially weak, and therefore they've really become dilapidated. I think, to me, the good news is that today there is finally a broad consensus that urban infrastructure is the key to economic growth. And you, you're seeing a major push to the National Urban Mission and other, other schemes, where for the first time in post-independent India, you are going to see a lot of capital being put into the improvement of cities. And this is not, again, improvement of cities just in the sense of building roads or flyovers. It's improvement of cities in terms of improving the governance, improvement of cities in being able to have more citizens participate, improvement of cities in using better accounting standards, improvement of cities by them being able to access capital bond markets. So these are kind of you know, structural changes that are going to happen in cities in the coming years. And that improvement in urban infrastructure will then become a critical part of the changes that you're going to see. So while I agree with Danny that, you know, there are a lot of challenges ahead, I think when you start, you know, sort of looking at the tea leaves or the various things happening, I think there's a lot of optimism that there are different things happening, whether it's on soft infrastructure, hard infrastructure, urban infrastructure, and so forth, which I think will really start delivering results in a very big way in the coming years. Thank you very much. Before I introduce the next speaker, I should say that LSE has a major program on urban development, and Ricky Burdett, who is a professor, is heading a global cities program, and hopefully there will be a big conference in India on global cities. And that will be LSE's contribution. Our, our next speaker is a, a distinguished politician, Earlier today, when, when Howard Davis was, was introducing the Prime Minister, he said how difficult the job the Prime Minister had. Being Chief Minister of Delhi is a slightly more difficult job because you've got the Prime Minister sitting on top of you. Uh, and uh, and that, is, that, is, that is no, no easy matter. Uh, I think uh, most people of Delhi and most people around India have, have learned to respect and, and admire the tremendous work Sheila Dixit has done as Chief Minister of Delhi. If I may say so, her worry nowadays is not infrastructure, but structures, and there are far too many of them in Delhi. <laughs> and I think she's handling that beautifully. Sheila Dixit. A very good morning to all the very distinguished participants in this LSE Asia Forum workshop, conference, whatever you call it. 
first of all, Dr. Desai, I am surprised, I don't know why I was asked to come and speak to such a very distinguished audience. And believe you me, I am nervous. But I'll try and tell you uh, the experiences that we have had in administering this city-state uh, of Delhi, which is also the capital of India, and a city-state which is aspiring uh, to become a global city. Uh, it has many problems. Many of you are aware of them. Uh, some of you who do not know, I'd just like to tell you that uh, our greatest problem is its attraction. It attracts half a million people every year who come into this city. And since it's a little city-state by itself, its land resources for a start are very limited. And it is uh, euphemistically or poetically said uh, that Delhi does not own even anything at all. Even our weather is imported. We do not have a weather which we can say that is Delhi's weather. Something happens in the Himalayas or something happens south to us or the eastern winds or the western winds which carry rain or do not carry rain. And therefore we either suffer or we gain. So, but Delhi is a historical city. It's a city which has the federal government. It is a city which is, uh, uh, which has attention to it, disproportionate to its size, both within the country as well as outside, because everybody looks at Delhi as the window to India, the coming India, the India which is going right, the India which is going not so right. So therefore the responsibility of the city-state, the capital of India, becomes even more. And the challenges are enormous. The challenges become enormous because uh, having the federal government here, uh, we get overshadowed. We cannot take decisions which are uh, reflective of the views of the people. We are an elected government. And yet as an elected government, uh, we have to deal at every point uh, with a great multiplicity of authorities and a great uh, interest uh, disproportionate to a federal government's interest in other states. So therefore, it has both a good side and it has a not so happy side. And in today's modern India, everybody is looking at what we would call a win-win situation for everybody. The private sector wants to win, the government also wants to win, the poorer marginalized want to win, the stakeholders and shareholders are not confined to just the, those who run the particular private sector or who run the government, but it consists of the larger mass of people who would also see what benefit is there for whatever infrastructure that you are making or bringing forth, and in what proportion is the benefit for them. And we cannot just wish it away. 
We have taken some very bold steps. And I say bold steps because uh, these steps or these thoughts had been lined up for decades in Delhi. For decades, Delhi had dreamt that it would have a metro. For at least two decades, there had been talk of uh, the terrible environment in Delhi, the awful diesel buses, and which were causing pollution beyond uh, bare almost. So it had to be changed into a mode of transport or using of fuel, which was cleaner and better. For decades, we had been looking for an infrastructure which would be able to cope up with the ever-increasing traffic. I don't have to tell you that traffic in Delhi is more than the traffic put together in Chennai, Bombay, and Calcutta. The sale of cars, the affluence that Delhi has seen. It's a great trading center. It's the largest trading center in northern India, but it is also is now a manufacturing center. We don't have big uh, industries, but we do have small industries in the pattern which was set there in the 60s when we all dreamt the, of the Japanese system where every household will become an industry, and that still continues to a very large extent. Of course, it has led to a lot of polluting industries coming here, which have to be moved out, and moved out to areas where do we get the land for. If we remove our polluting industries, other states say we will not let you buy the land, and so on and so forth. But I would like to say that in spite of all this, in spite of the multiplicity, in spite of the uh, constraints of space, in spite of the ever-increasing population that comes here looking for jobs, uh, I don't think we have done a bad job so far, but we need to quicken the space, uh, pace and we need to bring about changes uh, which will mean that quicker, faster, and more quality infrastructure comes into Delhi. Uh, many of you who visit here or have visited here for the first time would see that Delhi does have spaces. It does, it is a city of spaces. There are parts of the city where it's very narrow and very congested and the uh, density is perhaps the highest in the world. But it also has spaces, uh, like where we are sitting here, where the spaces are big. We can do lots with them. But in spite of the fact that we have to build a city, we have to give it infrastructure, we have to uh, clean up the river that is there in Delhi. It's a very critical issue that we are facing. We have to also see that the uh, city across the river gets properly connected with the city which is on this side of the river and its development is as good as it is in what is popularly known as the New Delhi part. So there are opportunities to bring around a lot of infrastructure. A lot has been done. I think we've built over uh, 50 or so flyovers We're on the uh, road to building many more, about 32 more by the end of the next two years. Uh, we've got a lot of underpasses, we've got a transport system which has been uh, strengthened with the coming of the metro, but um, it's not enough. 
the metro is not going to be enough. In spite of the fact in the next two or three years, that before the Commonwealth Games come, we will have about 162 kilometers uh, of the metro running all over Delhi. It's just not enough. And what do we do with the public transport system? As, and also with the transport system. As of today, and I would beg the industry to have a look at this, we have about 28 different kinds of vehicles flying at one single time at one single road in, our, in this city. That's true of perhaps all Indian cities, but more so of Delhi. We have the three-wheelers, the, three, the tuk-tuks or the scooters, whatever you may call them. They are there because they serve a purpose. Now, what happens that those who manufacture these cars, those who manufacture these vehicles, those who manufacture these tuk-tuks, what is their responsibility? Their responsibility, to my mind, in present-day India, is not only to see that the sale of their vehicles or their uh, tra uh, travel vehicles is good, that they earn the profits, but it is also their responsibility to see that these vehicles do not emit the kind of pollution that they do at the moment, or they did five or ten years ago. So therefore, profit is one motive which can be understood by the private sector, which is understandable, which has been the traditional way of looking at uh, industries and manufacturers. But I think you have to go beyond that now. If you really want a public-private partnership to be a vibrant one, to be an ever-growing one, we just have to join hands and see what is the social impact, what is the affordability of the goods that you're producing, by the people at large, by the community as a whole, by the systems that are to be put in place. If the pressures of transport are going to be there, we have to have cleaner and greener transport. If the pressure of using power is going to be there and the, the need for power goes at the rate of 9 to 10% every year, if we are going to meet that need, we also have to look at conservation. We'll have to look at conservation so seriously that uh, it has to uh, match your production and power. And I do believe that if we were to take the steps of conserving power, we will be able to, as of today, in the present scenario, we will be able to save about 500 megawatts of power uh, uh, requirements of Delhi. Now, what do we do? So we need to have all those who are manufacturing goods, whether they are in the power sector or the water sector or the transport sector or even in the construction sector, what do we do? Can we come together and think of that common person? Because even though we are living in a market economy, India is also aspiring to become a great economic uh, market. Do, what do we do with those who will be left far behind? And there are many, many more who are not sometimes in our scheme of things uh, when we 
uh, either do manufacturing or when we do our policy making. That is where the governments come in. The governments have to think that those who are marginalized, those who cannot afford it, uh, also need to be serviced. They also need the kind of health services, the kind of education, the kind of uh, mm, uh, social uh, parameters, barometers, which are required for a growing society, for a society which is full of inequities. What do we do with the great women force? How do we empower them? What do we do with those children who are still out of schools? What do we do with them? Now, these are aspects which I do believe and very sincerely believe that governments and private manufacturers just have to come together and solve. Today, I don't think we can look at industry and say, all right, you earn your uh, profits, whatever you can, uh, and nobody will say anything. But today, people expect that not only will you earn your profits, but your profits will be to the larger benefit of the larger section of our societies. I also believe that um, governments have to change. Our systems have to change. Our bureaucratic way of thinking has to change. Our bureaucracy has to change. And if the industry's thinking has to change, so has the government's thinking, as well as the bureaucratic systems that are in place there. And this uh, present, we are getting out of it, but I think we need to get out of it much faster. And that is this feeling of uh, mistrust, not having confidence in the other. I can tell you a small example. We have privatized power distribution in Delhi. And it is far, 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 far better than it was when it was not privatized. The theft was far too much. There was too much of inefficiency. The government used to support the, uh, the power uh, utility to thousands and thousands of crores of rupees a year. All that has lessened. But what has it brought around? It has brought around in the people's perception that these private power companies are here to make a profit. Therefore, they are fiddling with my bills. They are putting in meters which are electronically uh, worked and therefore run faster than my other meters do without realizing, without uh, uh, saying that the previous meters were, had a habit of being, becoming slow. So uh, if my bill was 500 rupees and suddenly becomes 1,000, 1,500 rupees, I forget that my gadgets have become much more because I've become a much more affluent person or that the meter has been changed and that it cannot be tampered with. Therefore, the bill has become from 500 to 1,500. Now, these misconceptions come around because there is no communication. So, therefore, I would plead with the captains of industry that please communicate with your customers and consumers. Only looking for profits, then I think something has to be done about it. This mistrust, this question mark has to be erased. The same is happening with water. You would be surprised to know that Delhi has really, in real terms, no shortage of water. 
we, if we look at our population, including the one million which comes in to work in Delhi every day and then goes out, if we look at that, our per capita consumption of water, considering what we are supposed to be producing, is uh, about the highest. It's about 260-odd liters per capita per day, one of the highest in the world. And yet, we have shortage of water. Distribution is bad, and metering is bad, because people have got used to a system where, you know, water will come or it won't come, or if the tap is running, it's a government tap or it's a government utility tap, let it keep running, it doesn't matter. We tried about two years ago, after a World Bank study had been done, how we would be able to uh, manage our water resources better. Now, governments need to manage their resources much better than they have been doing so far, because it's so easily to, easy for a government to make a budgetary provision and say so many losses made up by so much, thousands of crores. Now, that we were not able to bring forward because somewhere it got by a couple of people who may have had or may not have had a vested interest. The, the idea spread around that water was being privatized and that it would cost the earth now and therefore it should be stopped because it is a basic necessity. We just had to shelve it and therefore we had to shelve the reforms. So in a democratic system, I've given you this example primarily to say that in a democratic system, it's not always easy to do things which may be right, which may be right in the long run. We always have to take people with us. Now, if we find that the private and the government sector work in tandem, also look after the social requirements of the marginalized people, also look after the poorer sections, I am absolutely certain that there is no reason uh, we, why we cannot succeed in the public and private partnership uh, era which we are beginning. But trust, faith, confidence in each other and the fact and this old uh, thinking that governments are the only ones who will do something for the poor or for the marginalized and that a private sector person is there only to make his or her um, profits and it doesn't matter who it is, they couldn't care less. Therefore, the private sector has to move into areas of education, has to move into areas of health, has to move into areas where uh, goods are sold to people at reasonable rates, you can charge anything you feel like from those who can afford it. Nobody has any problems there. But you have to also think, how do you subsidize those you, uh, you have charged a hefty amount to, and subsidize it for those who are unable to afford the kind of things? Because we will require that. We need to have roads. We need to have an excellent transport system. Now, a transport system which we need to change very, very fast, bring in private participation into it. We have to do that with the private sector because they alone will be able to run it properly. But every time we talk about it, people raise their voices. They say, oh, today I pay a 10 rupee amount for my travel from 
my place of work and my home. But tomorrow, if the private sector comes in, I may have to pay 25 or 30 rupees. Then the service, the quality of the, of the service is not a matter of concern to him or her. The matter of concern is how much are they having to pay for a service which they feel is their right to have. So how do we match all this? That is the real challenge in front of us. And today, India has the Right to Information Act also, one of the few countries that has it. And I can assure you that in Delhi, this Right to Information Act it has been a boon and also a stand-up and uh, keep your house in order by the governments and the bureaucracy. We have an archaic demo, uh, bureaucratic system which needs to be changed. I do know what you have to run to from pillar to post to get one thing sanctioned and then this happens and that happens. But the Right to Information Act is something I think the industry must make use of also. I know you're not covered by it, but the governments you have to deal with is covered by it. Therefore, quality, speed, and quantity can be taken care of to a very large extent by citizens of, like all of you who want to do something for the country and the governments who want to see all of you joining in this great adventure that we are going through to bring India at par with the great powers, the economic engines of the world. With these words, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Shiraji. Now, I have to say to all you Dalivalas, when she says governments must change, she doesn't mean her government. You still got to work for her. Uh, our last speaker is, is Tarun Das, who has led the CII in this, in this long history. I used to criticize the CII as a Confederation of Infant Industries, uh, and, uh, and the whole logic of relationship between the private sector and government in India has changed, so that now the private sector is an independent force in its own right, and the diplomatic way in which he has led the, through the transition is a great tribute to Tarandas. He's also a friend of Harvard Davis, so I've got to be nice to him. Thank you. Tarun. I went to a university in England, a little north of London, uh, not in London, but it's great to be here with you to celebrate uh, LSE, to pay tribute to Dr. I.G. Patel, and to see so many distinguished friends and family over here uh, who I didn't know were LSE alumni. Um, you've had a rich content of um, statements here and I just want to wrap up in a way with uh, two perspectives on infrastructure. I'm going to speak on physical, the visible infrastructure, so stay with that. Nandan has spoken eloquently about uh, the other part. 
And you've heard the Chief Minister, who's a pioneer in infrastructure reform uh, in this country and has gone through enormous pain in, in driving reform in infrastructure in Delhi. I had the privilege of chairing um, a jury, the Mantosh Sondhi Award Jury. And uh, this is an annual award for people who have uh, contributed to infrastructure reform. And uh, the jury unanimously decided last year that a politician, a leader who has driven infrastructure reform against enormous difficulty in the political system and who deserves the award, the only politician we've ever given this award to is Mrs. Sheila Dixit. First perspective, a brief look at history. 1947 independence, 1947 to 1993, government owns infrastructure, controls infrastructure, manages infrastructure. So it's essentially a government monopoly. And of course government have to play a very big part in infrastructure development. But what did it do in India? It created a culture that infrastructure is free. No one has to pay for infrastructure. Result. That's the output. 1993, the then finance minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, and I think with the help of people like Dr. Ashok Desai, who's sitting in the hall, tried to bring about a paradigm change. And what is that change? Bring the private sector in. Have a PPP, public-private partnership, and change the culture that people have to pay for infrastructure. Not so easy after four decades of a different paradigm. And so we have been through enormous pain in this transition, in this making this U-turn from a totally government infrastructure operation to a public-private partnership operation where you have to pay for infrastructure. What's the track record after the pain? Success in telecom. Huge success. Lots of problems as we went along, but huge success. Success in ports. Success becoming visible in airports. There's a young man sitting here, he said he's an LSE, LSE alumni, Shafi Mathur, who uh, will tell you what they've done with the Cochin Airport. And then Bangalore, with all the pain, Nandan, you know it, and Hyderabad, and now Delhi and Bombay. It's moving. It's moving, it's tough, but it's moving ahead. Miracle. The railways. Something good is happening in the railways after many years. There's some outsourcing going on. There's a private sector engagement in the railways. Railways are making money. Some simple decisions have been taken, policy decisions. So you're seeing a turnaround in the railways. And it's very important because we can't only live on civil aviation. Though that has also gone through its change 
with private sector, public sector competing with each other. The last outposts on infrastructure, which we have to conquer, as it were, are power, water, I want to add water, and Nandan talked about urban development. These are the three last outposts. Getting there, work is going on, but we haven't got there yet. Future, way forward. Seven points. One, continue government planning and pricing, but continue government stepping back at the same time. So, two different kind of directions of government movement. Second, develop and frame simple models of public-private partnership. And if you haven't seen it, some of you, many of you are based in India, look at the Planning Commission's documents on model concession agreements for roads, ports, and other areas, which have become like a framework model, transparent model for infrastructure investment by the private sector. Third, very critical, we've got to have competition in infrastructure. More competition. Infrastructure cannot be a monopoly. It's, we've got to have competition. And then, and then we have to build through competition the infosys of the world in infrastructure. There's got to be a Wipro, an Infosys, a TCS in infrastructure. We don't have that yet. You know, we have a Tata Power somewhere. We have a CSE somewhere. We've got people coming up, but we haven't got to that strong infrastructure, private sector corporates, accountable to the public, transparent in their operation, and role models. Fourth, quick decisions from the judiciary. Not delayed for 10 years, 5 years, 7 years. Quick decisions for the judiciary on infrastructure issues, disputes. Very critical to build confidence and to bring investment. Five, the quality issue. We've been satisfied in the last 50 years, 60 years with third class infrastructure. We need to be satisfied only with world-class infrastructure. We have to see, and we've talked about China, we've talked about other countries, Singapore, Kishore talked about Singapore, great model of infrastructure. We've got to have that benchmark. There's no other benchmark for us. Got to go there and stay with that. And for that, my sixth point, people. Training, development, project managers, construction managers, a whole new breed of human resources who know how to put up infrastructure of world class, maintain and manage infrastructure of world class. We don't have that yet. They were all in the public sector. Most of them are still in the public sector. Some have come out with a big challenge ahead of building people to manage our infrastructure. And the final point and I look at Mr. Bajpai, and I think of Dr. Reddy, who was here, the independent regulator. The truly independent regulator, not a dependent regulator. Not a regulator 
who has uh, come out of the government, uh, spent all his life in the bureaucracy. Uh, this is a post-retirement job. He does not have the uh, job knowledge, the domain knowledge to really be a regulator. This is the challenge which we have to meet. We have to have independent regulators to make the infrastructure system work. And we can change the bureaucracy, Mrs. Dixit, on this, but we need to change the politicians also, especially some of your colleagues. These are my seven points. Now, my last point as I conclude. We've come from 3% GDP growth to 6% in the 90s to 9% to now. That's where we are today. We are at 9%, and probably our statistics are so bad, we're probably a little beyond 9%. Now, we have three major challenges we are dealing with. One, the infrastructure challenge, which we've talked about this morning. The social challenge of education and health, which is also being tackled separately, and which Nandan referred to. And the third challenge of connecting 600 million people who live in the rural areas of India into the mainstream of our economy. And those 600 million people, thanks to IT, thanks to telecom, and thanks to building of some physical infrastructure, are getting connected into the country for the first time. They're going to come into the economy as earners, as savers, as spenders, at the rate of 30, 40, 50 million a year. So I just want you to visualize this. This is going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years. And therefore, we are going to grow at 10% plus over the next 10 years. This is almost like an inexorable, inevitable process of the economy being enlarged and the economy being, and the market expanding because of this induction over a period of time of 600 million people with its challenges, by the way, of more demand for world-class infrastructure. But I think we are at it and we'll make it. Thank you. Shalendra Mehta from Duke University's Corporate Education Arm and Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. Uh, my question is addressed to the panel, and this focuses on the soft infrastructure aspects. Uh, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of the development of the Internet in India is that the 950 million people who are not comfortable with English uh, have very little access to it. So much so that uh, one researcher from the Media Lab at MIT 
uh, was given to comment that it is easier to do a search in Moldovan, which has a few hundred thousand speakers, than it is to do it in Hindi or Tamil on the Internet. And what this is doing is that it's depriving the overwhelming majority of the population of India from a fundamental right, which is access to the world's knowledge. Uh, and uh, this is something which has not been addressed at all uh, in any significant way. So I'd very much love to hear uh, the panel's opinion on that. A gentleman here, one last question. Wait, wait, wait for the mic. Gentleman here. This is uh, Shoma Ghosh from Yes Bank, and <clears throat> it's actually a supplement to the question which was just asked and extending, uh, extending the uh, focus. Uh, when we talk of infrastructure uh, and we also talk about private entrepreneurship for uh, public goods, how do you extend this approach uh, to addressing challenges of uh, poverty, of public-private partnership in agriculture and rural development. Uh, so that's the question. Thank you. One more question. Uh, here. No, hang on. No, wait, wait, wait for uh, a mic and then I can. Here, please. It's a good talk on infrastructure and the reforms what has been delegated for last hour and a half. The resource matter has not been touched, meaning, meaning thereby the financial aspects, how the fund is to be reached to put up this infrastructure into action. The question would have more relevance five years back there's little less relevance about the funding because India has built up a credibility internationally to have the raising of funds. But fund requirement may be 200,000 crores or 500,000 crores. Where are we going to have? Because timely funding for the projects in sequencing all the infrastructure can lead better results. Thank you. Okay, uh, who wants to have a first go? Nandan? Uh, well, I think uh, to the question of content, I think your point was that there's not enough Indian language content on the Internet, and most people who don't have access to English then don't have access to content. But I, I think uh, that, in a sense, is a chicken and egg. You know, you need access, you need users to want the content. So I think if you can address the access issue and really make access widespread uh, to the internet, then automatically there will be a lot more consumers who I think will want it in other languages, and that's how it's going to happen. I'd, there's no easy, easy, easy fix. I don't know if they can have a government program to create content in local languages or something. Uh, but I think, uh, the, I think the access issue will definitely get sorted out, because between technologies like cellular phones, WiMAX, Kiosk, you're going to have ubiquitous access to technology in the next four to five years. So I think we have to figure out a way to create content which can then be used by, by those people. But I don't think there's an easy answer on that. Uh, you want me to take any other? 
maybe I'll, I'll come back and maybe just say something about resources though the chief minister may probably know better than me but uh, i find that um, people want to invest in infrastructure resources is not a problem in the private sector they can leverage money but the problem is what's what is the environment in which they are coming in is there an independent regulator is the, is there a fast track system in the judiciary to take care of disputes these are the issues it's so that we appreciate what you're saying and i don't think we expect the government to provide all this money so that's the whole issue of public private partnership but there is a lot of money around uh, i would like to expand on what uh, tarun has said and that is that um, as of today i don't think there's a shortage of money even with governments what is hampering our moving forward is is the archaic systems is tarun has mentioned judiciary but there are many other bureaucratic systems uh, which uh, you know the what the finance minister has often spoken about is we have good input budgets but we do not have good output budgets you know a lot of our funds lapse and not only do they lapse you the the old system is that you are given an x amount of money for an x amount of project and it is to be spent over the year before the 31st of march and it is given out in four quarters you have you find that in the first quarter nothing happens the second quarter just about begins to move the third quarter it gets quantified and in the last quarter it gets implemented now what happens in th in this kind of a system is that in the last quarter the quality suffers and work is done quickly just to be able to get the checks from the planning board or the finance ministry or whatever it may be so i do think we need to have a relook at that one more point which i wanted to share with you and uh, did not is that we need apart from all the other infrastructure also refrigeration now what is happening we have one of the largest uh, vegetable and uh, uh, flower mandis in asia we find that by the time the goods come for sale by the farmer to the mandis to the markets 30% goes waste now i believe 30% is a lot a lot of of money and a lot of produce so refrigeration infrastructure in refrigeration how do you carry goods fast how do are you able to keep them going for a longer life shelf life so that the farmer as well as the person who's selling it who's the middleman he also gains from that and of course the nation gains on it also thank you thank you very much um just a couple of comments on the questions that have been raised the issue about non-english uh, non-english script non-english non-english languages and access to the world's stock of knowledge that is a genuine problem and i don't know that we currently have the 
uh, knowledge or the tools to fix that. We do know, for instance, that other experiences with yet other cultures, uh, we have some lead on that. For instance, the, you know, there are diverse Chinese languages. Chinese dialects that are spoken uh, can be incomprehensible from one part of the country compared to the, to the other. But at the same time, we are in the fortunate circumstance there of 2,000 years ago, a unification of the way in which the Chinese language is written down, that although it's a non-alphabetic script, has now been standardized and codified in such a way that Microsoft and other companies have been developed, able to develop add-ons so that you can actually use the Chinese language, uh, Chinese language that's non-alphabetic, that's non-Western, or in almost exactly an efficient way and as seamless a way as we use the English language. So there might be possibilities there to explore that, you know, my other panelists here who are more knowledgeable about the software industry can add to. On the issue of extending public-private partnership to agriculture in this country, there is hope that something like that might be a good thing. However, experience with public-private partnerships in agriculture elsewhere in the world have not led to very happy outcomes not very happy for the rest of society. We know that in the United States, agriculture is so efficient, technologically and engineering-wise, it is so efficient that the United States government has to end up paying people to let many acres of field lie fallow. We know that in the European Union, that heads of livestock get compensated by out-of-European Union government fees to such an extent that heads of livestock earn more per capita than sub-Saharan African countries do. That is not a happy outcome. And part of that is that the economics of agriculture is very different from the economics of the software industry, of higher education, and other sectors of the economy. We cannot plunge headlong into a, a, a milieu of public-private partnerships everywhere in a society, everywhere in an economy. Thank you very much. Now, before I take the next set of questions, I don't quite know that I have time for it. Let me first of all announce that at 1.40, the next session will start. And to all of you, wherever you are, better get back at 1.40, and then we can have uh, the, the, the next session starting at that time. Uh, I should also, uh, I'm, I'm going to take sort of two questions because I'm really running out of time. Uh, oh, God. You see, this always happens. And the first time you ask for questions, nobody is hands. Then last time, six hands. Okay, I'm going to take the lady here. First of all, and then the gentleman there at the back, uh, the yeah, yes, in the, the gentleman from Pakistan, yes. Um, I don't have a question, just like to add some information on uh, Indian language content. Uh, currently, Microsoft uh, supports 12 official Indian languages, but has no plan to support the remaining 10 so far. Uh, in open source, it is said that we support about 18 official Indian languages. But I think a bigger challenge is to find people 
who know English, who know the relevant local language, and are subject matter experts who can then convert this knowledge into the local language. I think that's the main challenge here. Thank you very much. My question is directed to the politicians as well as the economists. Uh, don't you think that infrastructure should also include the regional good relationship? And lowering of the defense expenditure to increase the economic development in the region? I think I'm going to stop there because we, we need a whole panel here to answer, and I've got to finish in two minutes. Yeah. Anybody want to answer anything? No, let, let, me, let me address the last question about the, the need to take a regional approach. Um, one of the examples that I was debating whether or not to mention because I, and, I, and I hesitated because I wasn't sure whether it was politically correct to do so, you know, taking advantage of your neighbor's assets. For example, with uh, trade growing within China and India at this incredible rate, a lot of it will go by sea, a lot of it may go by direct routes. But if you look, for example, at the road that Pakistan has built within Pakistan and China, is it conceivable that actually you can actually use Pakistan's infrastructure to connect with, with China. Now, I know that that goes into the zone of the unthinkable at this stage, but with the growing interdependence among Asian countries, we have to go beyond our comfort zones, go beyond what we normally use as trading and exchange routes, and look for new and unconventional ones. And by the way, a thousand years ago, all the areas north of Himalayas were where the main trading routes were. Those trading routes can be revived, can, can be sort of, you know, become once again strong and vibrant. But to do that, we have to remove our 20th century mental maps and perhaps go back a thousand years to see how we traded then. I think on the superb note, I'm going to conclude this session. I'm going to thank all of you, and I'm particularly going to thank my speakers. Sheila Dixit, as a busy politician, she's come and shared her thoughts with us. Kishore Mabhavani, uh, come all the way. Tarun Das, Nilakani. And Danny is not actually foreign. Danny is LSE, so he gets thanked last. Thank you very much. Thank you all.